under the sun, and there was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with the riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, it is grievous task. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, then two can resist him, and a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. I have to tell you that I really wrestled with these verses in my own soul over this last week. And we're going to end on a positive note as we look at the characteristics of fellowship and companionship, but... I really wrestle with this not only in the desire to have such companions in life, but also to be that kind of companion. The things that, that are laid out here that Solomon reflects on, that good companionship should provide for another. I want to be like that, and I know that I'm not always like that. And so I wanted to end with positive exhortations that come from these verses, but there is a lot of truth here, and again, he's continuing his observation and in this section, he's observing loneliness and the need for companionship. And I was thinking about a psalm that his father had written, Psalm 133, and the uncommon companionship that's labeled there and the reinforcement that comes from heaven in this companionship. And I was thinking about David's words. He says this in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And I thought about this as he describes the issue of unity because it is one of those words that, like love, when, it, when, when society gets hold of these terms, they tend to diminish them. We do this with the word love. We use it for everything. We can use it for a movie. We can use it for sandwiches. We can use it for whatever, right? We use it for our loved ones. It is this common word that we throw around to a whole bunch of things. But when we start using it for lower things, it's sort of like we reduce the value of the term. It's the same thing with unity, whether it's commercially used or whether it's sentimentally used or whether it's politically used, there's a tendency to take these kinds of concepts and diminish them as we use these terms in society. But we happen to miss the depth of the reality of these words oftentimes because we allow them to lose their value in what we say and use them in regards of. But when you look at David's life as he wrote this psalm, he was hunted by his predecessor. He was betrayed by his son, who also murdered his other son. He was abandoned by his inner circle. He was opposed by people that he served well. And so when he talks about good and pleasant, he describes unity. This is coming from a mouth that has tasted the bitterness of disunity, hostility, and estrangement. So when he talks about this kind of unity, this kind of companionship, he doesn't do so cheaply. He also knew that this kind of companionship, this kind of unity and brotherhood, it comes from above. Like the oil that drips down as he goes on to describe it, or from the dew that comes from heaven. He realizes that this isn't something that is man-made. 
It's God made. And this is how God has designed it to be. And so I wanted to end this section looking at the positive thoughts of what fellowship or companionship should look like. And really, if we could look at it this way, if I title the section verses 7 through 16, companionship is a great gain in life. And this is an interesting thought because how he sets this section up. Because he's going to talk about the ills of a lone life. And he's going to talk about the negatives and the positives. Although we're going to highlight the positives. But he begins with the sorrowful summation. And I find it interesting how he starts this section in verse 7. He says, Then I looked... And he says, and again, at vanity under the sun. And then he's going to return to this thought in verse 8, in the second part of the verse. And he's going to talk about the fact that this too is vanity. It is a grievous task. Now I find this interesting, the progression that happens here. Now just bear with me for a moment, because if we go back to verse 3 of chapter 4, he talks about how being non-existent is preferable to suffering the injustices in life. And this follows the observation that he makes. So he makes an observation and then he makes the statement in verse 3. Now what's interesting is that then you come to verse 4 and he's going to push the summary statement a little bit closer to the beginning of the verse after this brief observation that he makes in verse 4. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This to his vanity is striving after wind. So this comes his summation of the observation but what's interesting is that when he gets to verses 7 and following he begins with the summary declaration then he moves to his observation what's he doing by this he is showing the, the futility and the emptiness of walking through life alone this is how he begins verse 8 one who has no son, he has no brother, there's no one to follow him, there's nothing, no one to hand down the things that he has achieved in life, there's no one to pass these things on to. So what's interesting to me is that when he talks about companionship, the preacher never declares it as vanity. In other words, he is making this movement and he focuses on the negative aspect of being single alone and he is helping us to understand that there is nothing negative about a life of companionship. In other words, whatever effort we spend on maintaining a strong relationship, a strong companionship, it's worthwhile. It's wisely expended. It's worthy of our efforts. It's interesting that when we find these summary statements as he wraps things up, this is vanity, that is vanity. It's also interesting the things that he doesn't call vanity. And this is one of them. So if you're going to work on something in life, it is wise to go put forth your effort in relationships. And it's not just married relationship, and we'll see this when we come to the context. It's just companionship in general. So this is the word I've chosen to try and reflect on what Solomon is doing here. Some people use friendship in that, but sometimes I think it's too limiting. Some want to use it in regards to husband and wife relationship, and I know that these verses are oftentimes used at weddings and so on. That's not what he's talking about here, but it doesn't mean it doesn't pertain to that. So I use the word companionship and companion because it gives a broader scope. In other words, the principles he lays out here are applicable to any relationship and every relationship. So Solomon is going to paint us this picture and he does it with few touches. I marvel at the artistry of him because he knows his words and he chooses them carefully. 
He doesn't pile up a whole bunch here, but he makes a very clear statement. It is distinct and it is vivid, but it asks the question, what does one live for? We find in verse 8 that there's a question being asked, and it isn't even the individual who's asking the question. Solomon asked it for him. We understand this in Hebrew, so therefore in italics these words are added, and he never asked. This is the implication of the Hebrew. He never asked this of himself. In other words, his course of action never brought him to a point where he stepped back and said, wait a minute, what in the world am I doing all of this for? Solomon is the one who asked the question. So this guy was so blinded by his endeavors that he did not see the futility of what he was doing. So the first thing he's going to deal with is the issue of work for work's sake or acquire for acquisition's sake. This is interesting because he draws the attention to a certain man and he's going to make a contrast between verse 8 and verse 9 and we'll get to that when we get to verses 9 through 12. But he helps us to understand that work If it's just merely a means to an end, then it is good. It's a gift from God. It's something that we should enjoy, take delight in it. It is something that God has given us in regards to this world. But if we see work as merely as an end in and of itself, then it is bad. And this is what Solomon wants to help us to understand. And what we need to understand, because there's so many gifts that God has given us that they become an end in and of themselves, and therefore they become bad. But when we see them as a gift from God, and we see them as a means to an end, then we can enjoy them and experience them and move on, and we can still stay focused on the giver rather than on the gift. But there's so many things in our life that we make them a means to an end. We focus so much attention upon the thing that we lose the significance of it, right? It's like money. It's, that, it's an element of means. Money doesn't do you any good unless you spend it. You can't eat it. You can't wear it. You can't heat with it. Well, you could. You could try that. Although sometimes when I look at my heating bill, I feel like I'm burning up money. But we can, we can get this sense of, right? It is a means to an end, but much of what God gives us in life is a means to an end. And I have to envision that this gentleman, maybe as as Solomon pictures him here, maybe he didn't start off this way. For many of us, we didn't come into this existence with a great work ethic. Most of us have learned it. Most of us learned how to be diligent, how to apply ourselves to our jobs and and to work and and to do the job with dignity and so on. But most of us work into this. It isn't something that comes natural. So I can't imagine that this individual was any different than us, as Solomon pictures it, that he had to learn these things. But all of a sudden, he finds himself, he can't tear himself away from his job. Now business has become the thing. And it's interesting because even though he gains, it's for naught because he's solitary. He's making money, but Solomon helps us understand he doesn't even enjoy the money he makes. All he does is see that he needs to go do more work. He doesn't even get pleasure from the things that he produces or acquires. This is another example of futility of the human life, right? That loneliness that can come. And we all have heard the saying, right? It's lonely at the top. Usually because you're stepping on everyone to get there. And by the time you get there, you don't have any friends left if you had any. But when it's so focused on a particular thing, building status or acquiring for yourself, this insatiable seeking after things, after stuff, right? So that you can have this greater status and you just find that you, have, you, you can't have enough. 
And it sort of puts you in that position where you can never have enough, right? Because if it's all about status and it's all about look at what I own, then someone is always going to outdo you. So you're always going to feel like I've got to keep doing more and I've got to keep doing more. And it just never ends. And this is the cycle that Solomon wants us to understand when he portrays this individual in verse 8. There are selfish motivations that consume a person into futility. So he makes the statement, and he never asked, and, and for who am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? Notice, he doesn't get any delight out of the things that he has. He has them, but he doesn't enjoy them. So therefore comes the statement, this too is vanity. It is a grievous task. It's burdensome. This goes back to chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Solomon saw this in his own life, but this individual doesn't see this. He's taken that drive, the desire for achievement, and it's not a bad thing, as we saw this last Sunday. But when it turns inward, it becomes miserliness. All of a sudden, it's about him, and there is this sort of insatiable avarice that drives him on. He's not satisfied with his riches. He can't even enjoy. All he gets the enjoyment out is the consciousness that he has these things, but he can't even enjoy them. He can't spend his money. He doesn't use his money. Therefore, he afflicts himself with this misery that he can't even see what he's guilty of. He doesn't see that this is leading him to nowhere. Not only that, but we can only imagine that the description that Solomon gives of this individual, that he degrades himself even deeper morally and spiritually, because if he's achieving all of these things for status for himself, and he's accumulating and accumulating and accumulating, and he's trying to hang on to all of these things for himself, and he has no one to pass it on to, then you can only imagine that when people are in need around him, he doesn't offer anything. He's trying to hang on to it all for himself. Because see, if I give it all away, I have no more status anymore. In other words, all of his life is wrapped up in his possessions. This is who he is. You take it all away and he's nothing. It's interesting, I was watching this couple and they had started a number of businesses. And they were on their third one at the time that I saw this interview. And, and they had made you know, tons of money, lived in well, nice homes, drove nice cars, had all of this stuff, right? And then businesses crash and then they start a new one and the reference they made is that we just keep redefining ourselves in other words the way that they defined who they were and what they were was by what they did and the things that they achieved that's what defined them that's who who they were but we know that life is more than that that we are more than that that God has designed us for more than that we're more than a material possession we're more than a job title what makes us so amazing and gives us dignity is the fact that we are created in the image of God and that we can have a relationship with each other and that we can have companions in life and that we can have fellowship. And there is this reality that we have community. And it's not like any other kind of community. When we think about the church, it's staggering to me, the reality of the church. The, the realization that we are bound together by something deeper than flesh and blood to realize that we have the Spirit of God in us who appropriates and applies the life that Christ has accomplished through His death and resurrection. He has applied it to our life, but that same Spirit indwells each one of us, and He binds all of our spirits together. So there is a domesticity of soul, and we have a shared life, a communion, if you will, a koinonia, a life that is all of ours, and we share this together as we share it in the Lord. And the Spirit is what binds all of us together. So Paul talks about this unity of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, that we are to preserve this, right, in peace, this unity of the Spirit. That is the basis of koinonia. 
the fellowship that we have, it is this oneness of soul. It's deeper than anything that this world could ever offer. So whether we drive the same cars and have the same status and any of that, that's not worthy of anything. Ultimately, what really matters is who we are within. But this individual can't see that. And therefore, we have another example of the rich man and Lazarus. Or one of my favorite movies around this time of the year, Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, you think about the guy, the, the, the miserliness of his life, right? And the misery of it all. And, and really the irrationality of his life because he accumulated all of this stuff and yet he, there was no beneficiary of it. And so he's accumulating all of this stuff, but he has no dependent. He's not married. He has no children. So he gathers up all of these things, but who's he going to pass it on to? And when he dies, well, who's going to take it over? So then you have to sit there and ask yourself, why am I doing this in the first place? Fortunately, he comes to the realization that this is emptiness. And he begins to share the things that he has accumulated and realize that there is great joy. When it's not an end in and of itself, but it's a means to an end. And he came to realize the, the reality of relationship. This is why one of my other all-time favorite movies is It's a Wonderful Life. And I told a friend of mine that, and he's like, he was putting it down in our conversation. And I said, hang on now, wait a minute, that's one of my favorite movies. He said, why? I said, well, just think about the premise of the movie. Here's a young man who aspires to go off and do great things, build bridges and buildings and make his mark on the world and build these massive things so everyone will remember him after he's gone. But he never gets to leave Bedford Falls, his hometown. Every chance he has an opportunity to leave, something happens and he stays there. He has a house that's falling apart. His wife is driving, you know, working so hard to try and build this house up, right? That was a rundown mess when they took it on. But he looks at his life and he thinks, I have nothing. And he thinks to himself, I'm better off dead. At least my family would benefit from my life insurance policy. Then all of a sudden he gets to see life without his existence. All the different lives that he impacted and the lives that were impacted from those lives. He saves his brother when they were kids, so then his brother goes off and saves a ship full of men in the middle of war. But those men would have never been saved if he hadn't saved his brother that day when they were kids on the lake. You see what I'm saying? What's the important thing? The relationships. The relationships. You might sit there and look at your life and say, I have nothing great to show for myself. But you do. You do in the relationships that you have with others. You do in the fact that you are part of the body of Christ. All of that other stuff, it's just a means to an end. But it's just stuff. It passes along with the rest of this world. But these relationships, these are eternal. Isn't that awesome? So then even the realization that as we pour into each other's lives, this stuff lasts forever. So we were talking about the young people on Philippians chapter 1, talking about Paul's prayer life and asked the question, well, what did Paul pray for? Physical things or spiritual things? He always prayed for spiritual things. Why? Because of those are the eternal things. Those are the things that last forever. It isn't that you can't pray for the physical stuff. But the eternal things are the most important. 
Two other thoughts that come out of this, and I'll leave this for, to, to ponder on. Companionship of domestic and social life is the order of nature. It is the appointment of God's providence. And this is something that Solomon helps us to understand. This is God's design. We were meant to live in community. We weren't meant to live as islands unto ourselves. I'm an introvert. It's really hard for me. <laughs> Some of my enjoyable times was getting on the motorcycle by myself, riding by myself. But the Lord has helped me to see over the years that, that, that there's no life at all when you live by yourself, right? Because you need others. Because you can't accomplish things in life on your own. It's impossible. God didn't design us to be that way. The other thought is this, that such companionship supplies a motive and a recompense for our toil in life. And this comes out of the negative statements, and we know the true corrective, that such hopeless tendencies is to be found in cultivation of spiritual fellowship with Christ and in a wide circle of sympathy and generosity. You know what's interesting? I started thinking about this and the, the consequences of sin. And we think about the estrangement from God in that, but what about the estrangement from one another? And some of the consequences of sin is the fact that we have a hard time empathizing, sympathizing with other people. It's a consequence of sin. Because, because of the sin nature that we wrestle with, there is a tendency to turn inward. That's why we're constantly reminded in Scripture what happens when you turn yourself inward and you start looking to self and living for self and being self-willed and self-driven and not looking outside of yourself, right? The destructiveness of it. But it's hard for us as, as sinners to, to sympathize with other people and, and to empathize with them, to, to see life through their eyes or to try and understand what it's like to walk in their shoes. But we need to do that if we're going to cultivate good companionship. Because we have a tendency to do that. We look at some that someone's going through and we judge the situation by ourselves. And we look at that and think, I, why can't they just get on with life, man? Seriously, right? But then I have to stop and say, but they're not like me. <laughs> right? They're not like me. They're seeing the situation from, from a different perspective than I am. And there's a need to understand the constancies of companionship. And so we're going to end with these thoughts in verses 9 through 12. And I love this because there is this contrast that happens. Verse 8 begins this way, and I just put it in literal order from the Hebrew for you. And, and he starts off verse 8 this way. There is one alone, not there is a second. In other words, any way that Solomon could isolate this individual and, and put them on an island and they are all alone, they have no one else around them, this is it. And then he goes on to describe even further that he has no son, he has no brother, there aren't these intimate relationships, there's no one to carry on his name, no one to carry on the work that he's done and so on. And then he gets to verse 9 and he's going to state this positively now. Better are two than one. So there is an emphasis that he strikes in verse 8 and then in verse 9. And there is a stark contrast between the one he talked about in verse 8 as the ones he talked about in verses 9 through 12. And we're going to focus on the better part. There's a need for companionship. The necessity and the benefits that come from a spiritual society. God made us to live in community. This is how he designed us to be. This is how he made the world to be. Go back to Genesis 1 find this so intriguing. It's such a beautiful piece of literature. There's so many amazing things about it. One of them is that when you find the patterns as you walk through Genesis 1, right? The patterns of night, day, right, first day, so on. But also the statements of good. 
So Genesis 1-4, God saw that light was good. Verse uh, 10 of chapter 1, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. So we had this note struck in regards to light, and it just continues on. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Gets down to verse 25. This is the final statement. When he looks at creation. However, now that he's created man, this is the end of the process, chapter 1. And God looks at everything that he made and he said, Behold, henne, don't miss this. It isn't merely good. It is very good. Then you get to chapter 2 where he isolates and focuses on the creation of man. So you have all these statements of good, 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 good. And then all of a sudden he's going to make man in his own image. And he creates Adam. And then where the statement comes, right? The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. And just so Adam gets it, as men were a little bit thick in the head, he has all the animals passed in front of him, and he sees all of them, he names all of them, and then the end of the whole process, he realizes, I have no companion out of all of this. In other words, God knew it wasn't good for him to be alone. Adam needed to see it wasn't good for him to be alone. And then he creates Eve out of his side. In other words, man is never meant to function by himself. We need others. I need my wife. I need my kids. I need my family. I need my spiritual family. I can't do life by myself. I've tried. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. So the passage in Ecclesiastes, I know oftentimes it's brought into the marriage and talked about marriage relationship primarily. That's not what's being discussed here, although it doesn't mean that it's not applicable. But the individual that completely isolates himself or herself from companionship, they fail to experience the community and all the blessings that God has designed for this. It's God's order of things. That's why when man was perfect and the statement came, right, it is not good for man to be alone. This was in, in Adam's pre-fallen state, which is even more amazing, right? It isn't that, well, he fell, now he needs someone. This is how God has always designed it to be. And the amazing thing is about the family is that it is the basis for all society everywhere. You break down there, you break down everywhere else. So I saw a young man on the news the other day talking about this fact. He says the problem in many of our communities is because there's a breakdown in the household. We have all these dysfunctional families, therefore we have a dysfunctional society. Exactly. Why? Because that's how God made it to be. We are meant to live in community. Therefore, God advocates companionship over solo lives. And Solomon is going to draw a series of examples here. And he's going to focus on the existence in contrast to companionship. And he's going to give us these statements. And we're going to focus on the positive aspects. Three examples that he draws from here. And they could be seen as being those experiences that you face as you're traveling in your eastern world. First one in verse 10, the danger of falling into a pit or ravine, the error or the mishap. Or verse 11, we have the danger of cold nights, no warmth, adversity faced. Or if we have the third example, the danger of robbers encountered along the road, open hostility, verse 12. But it's better to see that these things are not just merely restricted to travel either. In other words, there's principles that lie behind these things. These are proverbial statements that Solomon makes here. In other words, there is a helper, there is a comforter, and there is a defender. And they can apply to many life settings. And this is how we should approach this. The principles here are, are across the board. We want to talk about companionship in all level. 
So the first thing that I realized from this in verse 9 is the fellowship fosters effectiveness. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Two acting together have a potential for a larger profit. Start off simple, right? Division of labor and cooperation in labor with two important principles in life. It's the thing I love about the body of Christ. There is unity that we're commanded to maintain, right? Maintain the unity of the Spirit. There is unity that we are to attain to, Ephesians chapter 4, and that is that mature man, not men plural, but man singular. In other words, we are to be a one mature man as the body of Christ. Therefore, it takes all of us moving in that direction. But he also helps us to understand that that unity is by God divine and God ordained diversity. In other words, when Paul talks about unity, it isn't uniformity. We don't have to be the same. There's uniqueness in all of us. That is the beauty of the job, right? We can divide up the labor. We have a common task that we all do as a church, but we all have unique ways and ways that we contribute to that and how it moves forward. And one cannot replace the other. This is the beauty of spiritual gifts. We all have a gift that we are to bring to the life of the body of Christ. We're all to be serving, but not one of us has the exact same gift. This is what makes us so amazing. We have unity, but there's diversity. And so when we find the same kind of principles laid out in labor, we have this common job, but we can divide up and we do this job, right? But we understand that we're moving in the same direction. Or if we can use this example, an arch consists of two weaknesses. And yet, when they're leaning against each other, there is strength. Weak when you stand by yourself, strength when you stand together. You get more difficult jobs done by encouraging one another. I learned this years ago. I used to be into weightlifting. And it was into powerlifting. And I, most of the time, like to work out by myself. But when you're doing powerlifting, there's a lot you can't do by yourself. But I also found that there is great value in a good workout partner. They knew how to encourage you to get you to move the load. <laughs> and those who just stand around and are distracted and so on, they weren't helpful. And I'd rather them be out of the gym than in the gym with me, right? But it's the ones who helped you get the task done. Then you realize that they depend on you to do the same thing for them. And all of a sudden you realize we have a camaraderie here. And you find that we have companionship. You find that we can take difficult jobs and we can make them easier if we do them together rather than do them alone. But sometimes it's hard for us to do that. Especially when we have tasks that we do on a regular basis. We get so used to doing it our way. It's really hard for us to let go and let someone else step in and start doing the task, right? But then we don't see the beauty of the body. We don't see the beauty of how we all work. We don't see the uniqueness that others can bring and contribute. Maybe you didn't see something in how you were doing it the first thousand times that you did it. Then someone else comes along and they see something better that can happen with this, right? But you would never know if you try to take it all on yourself all the time. Cooperation among companions makes for a more efficient labor. The next one is verse 10. Fellowship provides aid in calamity. And he draws this out. He says, For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls, and there is no one to lift him up. Companions can assist each other. 
right, when trouble strikes. It's an amazing thing, walking through life with my best friend. And I realized this years and years ago, and it was such a, a joyous realization that if I were to die young, and I, and I expect that I probably am, I don't know, but I, I, the thought that my kids will be raised in godliness, that was such an encouragement to me. I realized that I have such an amazing godly wife, and she has a genuine relationship with her God, and she walks with him and talks with him and lives life with him, that I never had to worry about what my kids are going to turn out like, right? Or that there won't be a, a positive godly influence in their life if ever I was to go. But the idea of being able then to walk through life with her through difficult times, and we've seen them, not just the good times, but the hard times. And you find that there are times you need someone to lift you up. As a guy, that's hard for us sometimes. We're the head of the household. We want to be the strength for everybody. But sometimes you need to lean on someone. And you look at the Apostle Paul. It's interesting. This is a realization I had with him. And we've been walking through 2 Timothy with Jerry on Wednesday nights. But you look at how these young men leaned on the Apostle Paul. But it's fascinating that if you really look at his life and relationship with them, how much he leaned on them, how much he depended on Timothy. And then Titus, I'm reading in 2 Corinthians, and Paul is talking about in the beginning of 2 Corinthians this lack of comfort and that life was being threatened at every turn, right? And he says, I head into this territory in Macedonia. I'm looking for Titus. He's not there. And there's this open door for ministry, and he doesn't stay there, which blew my mind. You have an open door for ministry, and you don't stay there. You leave. Why? Because Titus wasn't there. Why? Because he needed him to lean on and he wasn't there, so he went to find him. I realized the great Apostle Paul, this man who was the commando of missions, right? Church planter extraordinaire, needed young men alongside of him that he could also lean on when he was in time of difficulty. Falling here can represent any kind of trouble in life, and we need those to be alongside of it. Verse 11, fellowship promotes comfort, well-being, and happiness. There is the provision of emotional comfort against the coldness of this world. He talks about the warming of one another. I can see how marriage relationship, this is a nice thing. There's no sexual connotations by the terminology used here at all. And again, it's the idea, you can apply it to traveling or what have you. Two thoughts that came out of this for me. Companionship, when we talk about emotional warmth, is friendship, but spiritual warmth is fellowship. Something deeper. And that's what we're aiming for. We can have friends, right? And there is friendship, but then there's fellowship. Fellowship is so much deeper. So much more beyond that. Final thing is verse 12. Fellowship imparts strength, stability, and power of resistance. Individualism and division make for weakness. If everyone is heading off in different directions and they're all walking out this way and everyone's heading their own direction, everything falls apart, right? A kingdom divided against itself, right, cannot stand. Household divided against itself cannot stand. However, when we're together, right, there's strength in numbers. So Solomon helps us to see in verse 12 that there is a proper complex of power and the threefold strand of rope provided the strands are good and support one another. There are many battles that we have in life before us, behind us, within us. We need people beside us. We need those who are going to bring strength and comfort. I met a brother for the first time yesterday, a brother in Christ. We had breakfast together. 
and, and all those and elderly gentlemen. It was amazing because we're sitting in a restaurant and you have family members and friends and all the stuff around you, but there's something unique about what's happening right here at this table. The fellowship that was there was so much more profound to me. There is a significant cost, though, for meaningful companionship. If I can draw on the analogy of being a soldier, you just don't stumble onto the battlefield. There is training. You have to count the cost. You set aside distractions. You lock arms, and you march onward and upward. Thinking about this in light of 2 Timothy, this is the thing that Paul exhorted Timothy to do, to not be afraid, to not be ashamed, to lock arms with him, and to take up his fair share of suffering to walk on and to march on together. It's really hard to find good companions, especially when you're in a spiritual battle. To find those who are willing to fight the battle with you, to stand alongside of you, to walk into the fray, those are the ones you want to hang on to. Those are the ones you want to cultivate. There are going to be many passers-by, but very few are going to be the ones who lock arms with you, and they're in it for the long haul. And it is hard sometimes, I realize this, that in relationships, you can spend a lot of time and effort building into someone's life and then have them leave. It happens. We live in a sinful world, and we're also, when we look at the church, we're, if I borrow the imagery of Paul, it is the garden of God. It is his tillage field. He can transplant whoever he wants from this garden to that part of the garden. He can do that. God does. Sometimes it's hard when we build into people's lives, and you do it for years and years, and then they walk away from you, and not a word. But that doesn't mean that we need to stop or should stop. Because then there are those that you find who've been around all along, you've been pouring into their life, and you realize these ones stay. Sometimes we want to go chasing after the ones who don't want to be there rather than just enjoying the ones who are there and have always been there. Just keep that in mind, right, as we fellowship with one another. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness to us. We thank you for the fellowship that we have in your spirit. Father, that is so much deeper and more profound than just flesh and blood. There is a friend who is closer than a brother. And we're so thankful for these gifts from heaven. These uncommon companionships that we have in life that we can partake of and and enjoy and delight in, Father. We're so thankful for the fact that they are gifts from heaven and they, and they bring stability to our life. Thank you for the realization that we cannot walk alone and that we aren't meant to live solo, that we are meant to live in community. And Father, I pray that we would continue to, to lean upon your spirit and to follow his leading and guiding as he seeks to manifest his fruit through our lives for the benefit of others. May we in the midst of our relationships, Father, not be reservoirs but conduits. May the blessings that we receive, may we pass them on to others. May we develop bonds, Father, that extend beyond this world. May we cultivate those things that are eternal in each other's lives. May we exhort one another on to good deeds and to holiness and purity and to a more intimate relationship with you. I thank you, Father, for those who walk alongside, for the gift of their companionship, however long it may be in this world, Father. 
I thank you for the eternal reality of it. And that although our paths may part now in this life for a time, we will be united together in heaven. So thankful for the blessings that we have in Christ our Savior, the Son of your love, and it's his name we pray.